Hey everybody, now before we kick off this episode, I just wanted to give a brief explanation. Uh, about the halfway mark of the episode, there's a bit of a shift in tone and uh, maybe a bit of a shift in the audio that you might hear. And the reason for that is, unfortunately, the first time myself and John recorded, I ran into some major technical difficulties which uh, prevented us from continuing the chat. Uh, that was uh, a few months back um, and we had to rearrange and uh, myself and John managed to catch up uh, probably about a month, month and a half ago now and uh, finish off the rest of the episode. Uh, as a result, um, there were some things that were repeated as I wasn't sure how much of the initial recording I would be able to salvage. Uh, so this is a sort of combination of two conversations myself and John had. And um, I wanted to share both parts of it with you because I feel that there's a lot of important information uh, that John is able to bring to us uh, from both his past his experience and his view now um looking forwards as well as what's occurring uh going forward with economic hitmen uh, from china and uh also his his new book that will be uh, released next year that we mentioned during the episode as well i hope you enjoy it uh as always drop your comments down below um share the video if you can share the podcast if you can uh, the episode and uh, i hope you enjoy it and uh, now over to myself and John as we continue the rest of the episode. Thank you very much. That's my cat. Bye. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us John Perkins. Now, John Perkins was the former chief economist at Chad T. Main, where uh, that wasn't his only role. He'd also worked as an economic hitman, something that John's going to tell us a little bit more about in a moment. But following his work there, he went on to found his own energy company, uh, which he attributes the success of with um, his silence uh, after stepping out of working as an EHM. And then also uh, founding the Dream Change charity and co-founder for the Pachamama Alliance, which are things that I'm sure we're going to touch on to over the course of the uh, episode. However, John, welcome, uh, first off. And um can you maybe take two minutes to introduce yourself? And then after that, what exactly is an economic hitman? And uh, then we're just going to roll on from there. Well, thanks, Sonny. Yeah, I think you've already introduced me. Uh, but an economic hitman, you know, as you mentioned, my, my official title was chief economist at this major international consulting firm that operated out of Boston, Massachusetts, all over the world. Uh, my and I had a, a, a staff that that was thirty to uh, at times fifty people. And our my job was really to identify countries that had resources that corporations want, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. Uh, and the loan then would have to be used to hire U.S. corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country things like power plants and industrial parks and highways. These were things that made a lot of money for the, for the companies that constructed them, the ones that were paid out of these loans. And they made uh, a lot of money for a few wealthy families in the country, the families that owned the industries, the commercial establishments, the banks that benefited from better electricity or more electricity and highways and industrial parks, et cetera. But they were a bad deal for most everybody else because money was used, it was diverted uh, from paying, it was diverted to pay interest on the loans and it was diverted from uh, 
education facilities, healthcare facilities, other social services that benefit everyone. So it was really a very bad deal for the country ultimately. However, we could show with our econometric models that it was a good deal for the country. You know, it was very deceptive because you can show that when you invest a lot of money in infrastructure in a, in a, in a, a lower income country, the economy grows, the GDP gross domestic product increases. And we always, I was taught in business school to believe that that meant the country prospered. And that's, that's the selling point, the country prospers. But as I get into this deeper, I began to see that the country didn't prosper, that just a few individuals, a few families prospered. And that GDP is a lousy measure. It doesn't measure prosperity. It measures how well the rich are doing, basically. And that's true in the United States, too. Here we've got, for example, three individuals who have as much wealth as half the population of this country. If those three individuals made 10% on their wealth last year and half the country lost 3% and everybody else remained the same, you would show a growth rate of almost 4% in, in, in wealth. So it would look as though the country prospered when the fa fact of the matter was only three individuals actually prospered. And if that's true in a country where three individuals own as, own as much as half the population, what about countries where three individuals own as much as 90% of the population, you know? So, but this is not apparent to most people. And it wasn't apparent to me for a long time. So, and, I, and my job was to convince these countries to take these loans, put themselves into deep debt, hire our companies to build infrastructure projects for them. And in the long run, they couldn't pay off the principal on the loan. And so we'd go back in and say, since you can't pay your debts, uh, sell your oil or whatever the resource was at cut rate prices without any environmental or social regulations or with very few. Uh, vote with us on the next United Nations vote that, uh, against Cuba or, or whatever. Allow us to build a military base on your soil. Really what we were doing suddenly was, was colonizing the world. We were creating a, a, a global empire. And then you can, we can call it an American empire, but it was really a corporate empire that was supported by the United States. And I will also say that it, you know, these loans were attractive uh, to leaders of countries because they and their friends and families would make a lot of money. They could, we would produce reports that they could take to the press in their country and they could tell their people, look, our economy is gonna grow. And we could say, it, and it was true based on the measures that, that we all were using. Um, and on the other side of the, the coin, all of these, that's my cats in the background, if you hear. I thought that was mine, so. <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> she wants to be on the program. Maybe she will be later. Uh, they can make an appearance, yeah. <laughs> we had, behind me were people called jackals. And these are people that overthrow governments or assassinate leaders. They're usually... CIA assets. And, uh, you know, and Peggy, she, unfortunately, she said, oh, you're talking about those jackals again. <laughs> uh, you know, we, the United States has admitted to having these jackals participate in the overthrow and, and often the death of people like Allende of Chile and Mossadegh of Iran and Lumumba of the Congo and uh, Ziem of Vietnam and, and, and on and on and on. The list goes on. Most recently, Honduras and in, in, in in Honduras's Zelaya in 2009. So, you know, you got a head of a state 
you're the head of the state, Sonny, and I'm sitting in front of you. And basically I say, hey, I got a few billion dollars for you in this hand. If you don't take it, got a gun in this hand, you know. I didn't have the gun, but I knew guys with guns were right behind me. And and so did the leader. They all they are all aware of this. I mean, that's one of the things that you mentioned as well in uh, in the original, uh, or this is the new confessions, but in, in confessions that there were also leaders that even if the coup attempt, uh, the overthrow attempt had failed um, by the jackals, it was still enough to scare that leader into saying, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to roll with it. You know, the, it wasn't an empty threat. Yeah. Yeah, that that was, for example, I, I believe used in Ecuador with uh, President Rafael Correa, where yep. it was an attempted coup and it, it failed. And I think it, it, it intentionally failed, but he got a very strong message and in, and changed his policies radically after that. Uh, he, he, I know Rafael and he, he, he denies it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but of course you would deny it. And, and, you know, he points out there are other reasons for changing some of his policies, pressure from his own people and so on. But uh, yes, it's a very, very effective policy. And of course it's been used for thousands of years. Uh, you know this 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 whole process goes back a long time, especially the jackals. Using debt and not the military is is much more recent. Uh, that you know that's become prevalent, especially prevalent since uh, um, <clears throat> I became an economic hitman back in the seventies. In, in fact, Sonny, I talk in the, my new book about the four pillars of the economic hitman strategy, and they are fear. Fear of the other, whoever the other, you know, we 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 planted fear of, of communism. You know, we've got to stop communism coming into your country and destroying you and your presidency and so forth. And then there's debt, and I just described that. And then there's something called anxiety of insufficiency. So you're a very poor country, and you know you've got to be anxious about your but your status in the world and the fact that many of your people are very, very poor and starving and we'll help bring you out of that by using debt. And then the, the, the fourth one is uh, divide and conquer. You know, so join us, don't join the, the communist bloc. Today we say don't join the Chinese bloc. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and of course, this is being extremely exaggerated today by the invasion of Ukraine where this is vying for the world's but, you know, very active in in Africa and Latin America right now. That many countries are not siding with the United States and NATO because, you know, they they, they don't see that serving their interests. And of course, yeah. Russia is doing everything it can to make sure that that continues. So these four four pillars, which have been around for centuries: fear, debt, anxiety over insufficiency, and divide and conquer. And uh, in my in, in more recent times, we've we've increasingly switched to the debt and the fear of the anxiety of insufficiency and divide and conquer, and less use of military forces. But they're still there, as we well know today. And so the reason that those things happened is because they refused to sign with you. So it's I I want to say carrot and stick, but stick doesn't quite outline hard enough what the other option is um so then we get to the situation where people decide not to play ball and this is what you mentioned of having the jackals sitting over your shoulders and where other 
admitted CIA coups have occurred in the past, whereby either yourself or colleagues have not been successful in trying to get a world leader on side to sign the papers to get these loans. How often do you think is it that this kind of thing happens for one? And secondly, what for you when you see these things happening are telltale signs? So the reason that I ask that is so that we can then build up into that picture of Ukraine as well with the 2014-2015 transition um, from a leader who was almost pro-Russian into someone who was more pro-EU and pro-joining the UN and whatnot. Yeah, well, the how often does it happen? It, it is not that often because when it does happen, every other world leader knows that it happened. And Roldos was not that one, but Torrijos was. Torrijos had become a hero around the world, standing up to the United States. And, and everybody in the, everybody, every leader in the world knew that he was negotiating with Carter, it was, you know, it was an open book on the canal and he was being very strong about it that this this belongs to us and he was being very strong about other things panama needs to be a free country we can't be under the thumb of the united states he was extremely well known and so when he died the way he did and and then rolled those before him it sent a message out to every other leader in the world who might be thinking about standing up to the to us uh, not to do it and we recently had that well in 2009 it's not that recent anymore uh, Zelaya, President Zelaya was was taken out. Well, he, he wasn't killed, but he was, he was taken out in a coup and, and went into uh, fighting in another country. Uh, in 2009, he was the president of Honduras, who stood up to U.S. Uh, corporate interests, primarily in the big agribusiness businesses, uh, and also raised the minimum wage of Honduras by 60%, which impacted a lot of U.S. corporations that had sweatshops there. So he was... He was overthrown, and you know there was a, there was an attempt, and uh, there was a movement in Ecuador and several other countries that would seem to be headed toward defying the United States. That stopped almost as soon as as uh, as if what happened in Honduras happened. Uh, the rest of the continent kind of you know fell into line a little bit more. They might be verbalizing opposition, but they weren't really doing very much. Ecuador was a good example uh, where it started to open up its, its Amazonian area more and more and more to oil. Um, so I can't remember the second part of your question now. What was, what was the second part? Was then um, what are the how, signs? Yeah, yeah, the signs that people can kind of recognize yeah. when this does happen. Well, you start ahead of a country, the government of a country starts being accused of of being communist or, or being pro-socialist, pro-Russia, anti-US in some way. Uh, you know, we've seen that very strongly in uh, Venezuela and, and some of it's justified. There's always, there's always aspects that you can bring out. That happened with Zelaya in Honduras, that he was accused of being this anti-American socialist. He was a socialist, but he was not a communist and he, and he in no way advocated it. Both Torrijos and Roldos were accused of being pro-Soviet Union. Neither one of them liked the Soviet Union. As, as, as Torrijos once said, there aren't even any Russians in this country. Uh, maybe it was Roldos. Maybe they both said, I can't remember. They, they, in both cases, there were very few, if any. And they made a point of that. And yet our press launched this campaign about how awful they were and how socialistic or 
sometimes they're, they're accused of being, you know, uh, too authoritarian, dictatorial dictatorships. So when the, these campaigns are launched in the United States and, and, in, and in many other countries, that's a good sign that, that, the, that it's in the works. And that's a, that's a very strong warning to these leaders and to their countries. And sometimes the hope is that uh, the, the, the country itself, the, other, the opposition politicians will gain ground because the United States is being so evidently opposed to the current leader that maybe, maybe it'll happen peacefully. But if it doesn't, uh, the jackals will go in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that's, that's something that you mentioned where another failed attempt um, could be seen as uh, the US's entry into Iraq. Uh, both times whereby you know everything was tried the other way the um the way with the least bloodshed uh through economic hitmen and uh if there is a leader who still sticks to their own way of doing things shall we say not that i uh, approve of saddam or anything like that but he was someone who said no i'm, I'm i don't care bring the guns and uh then it wasn't just the jackals that came, it was the, the whole US army that came rolling through. But with that said then, it's still a bit, it's still not quite tangible, I, I don't think, um, for the listeners. As you mentioned that loans were given uh, to these countries. Um, but just to emphasize the point of, although the loans were given to the countries, what you mentioned last time we spoke uh, is that uh, maybe you know, 60, 70, 80% of that loan doesn't even touch that country's soil. It's gone straight from the World Bank, the IMF, and goes straight into the pocket of US companies because of uh, the structure of the contracts that were made. So even the moment the contracts are signed, when the country goes into debt after signing a contract for, I don't know, 40 billion, let's say, hardly any of that money actually touches the country's soil to help that country grow at all. And then you've got the element of once the infrastructure is there, as you well mentioned, that they're so busy paying off the debts, the usefulness of that new infrastructure, of the ability to dig for oil or and make use of oil, is no longer of any use to the country because they're in such debt. Now, how... How big of an impact did you have as an economic hitman? How many different countries were you involved with to help build that American empire? <laughs> well, first of all, let, let me say your, your analysis of money not going to the country is 100% correct. Uh, actually, none of the money went to the country, the, oh. the initial loan, none of it, none of it. Okay. It all went directly from the bank in, let's say, Washington, the, the World Bank, uh, to the consultant, the construction company of the engineering banks in wherever, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, <laughs> Houston, yeah. wherever they happen to be, the money just went directly. Yeah. Now, it would only get back to the other country because of bribes. And we had a whole system of legal bribes. Uh, uh, we were very careful not to do anything that was illegal in terms of bribery. But what we would do is tell the president of a country or where we were dealing with the Minister of Finance, whoever, you accept this loan and your brother owns the John Deere franchise. Uh, we'll see to it that uh, construction companies uh, pay him a really good price to rent his John Deere equipment. 
We'll, in other words, we'll we'll pay two million dollars for equipment worth a million dollars. You know, normally you'd expect that at a time like that, a construction company would come in and say, "Hey, we're going to give you a lot of business. Give us a discount." But mm. in this case, it's exactly the opposite. And knowing full well that that extra money was a bribe, that 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 the, that the brother would probably pay his brother, the president or the minister of finance, yeah. it was not our business. What would happen? And there's nothing illegal about that. If anybody ever called us on the carpet for that, which they never did, but if they did, we'd say, well, we, we struck a bad deal. That's all. And we also gave a lot of scholarships to colleges. My company was located in Boston, a city with lots of colleges, and we have lots of influence in those colleges. And we would we would provide scholarships. We'd make sure that the, 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 the children of the president and all of his friends got into one of these colleges and we'd, we'd, we'd give them a scholarship and we'd brag about this. We'd, we'd, we'd go to the Boston Globe and say, hey, you know, last year, uh, Charles T. Maine gave uh, several million dollars of scholarships to kids in poor countries. And of course, we never bothered to say we gave the scholarships to the families that didn't need them. <laughs> I see. But, but so that's the only way the money ever got back to these countries was through through these basically corrupt uh, methods that legally speaking are not corrupt, uh, but they are corrupt. They're terribly corrupt. They just they're just not part of our legal uh, definition of, of bribery. Absolutely. And it's. Um, if the same thing was done with the US and the military industrial complex, is it? Halliburton that was uh, Dick Cheney's company whereby yeah. they get massive uh, contracts uh, where everything is x amount overpriced uh, for the exact same reason so right. well, it, think about this think about this study you mentioned Halliburton and Cheney but Bechtel be, prior to that was George Schultz who was secretary of state became president was also president of Bechtel uh, before and after he was Secretary of State, and and Weinberger, who was a, a defense Secretary of Defense of the United States and was the Chief Counsel for Bechtel, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so this revolving door of a corrupt corruption within our own system that's again <laughs> illegal. So it's really not corruption no, no. <laughs> by definition, but it is corruption uh, by by according to the way it's used. Yeah, greasy handshakes is probably what they'd exactly. like to call it more oh, than anything not, else. Let's not forget the Bush family that owned a tremendous amount of oil. Let's not forget the Trump family. No, no. <laughs> let's not forget any of them. Uh, uh, you know, they, we can we can see this in all of them. And and of course, we're going through now some scandal, some potential scandals around the Biden family. So, you know, it's um, and again, this sort of thing has gone on from time immemorial, but. Uh, in the 1970s, we economic hitmen took it to new levels, uh, where where debt became such an important part of the policy, and for a long time the military was put in the background. That all changed after 9/11, and of course, you mentioned Iraq. How you know we we changed the policy, and but I have to say, um, what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and elsewhere. There was tremendous pressure during the time when the military wasn't very involved. There was tremendous pressure by what we call the military-industrial complex to get the military involved. Hmm. And so since 9-11, we've now got these two systems working hand-in-hand -hand once again, debt and military. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing it with China's using similar approaches. Yeah. And... It 
you mentioned uh, 9-11. And if we look at uh, the debt-based economy that was created around the military-industrial complex, it's essentially the same thing that you were doing as an economic hitman in foreign countries that's being done by US or the US on the US. Uh, but then how do we go from there in what we're now seeing and what you've already mentioned is this debt-based slavery that was imposed slash gifted uh, by the US World Bank IMF on foreign countries to countries waking up and realizing hey actually this wasn't so good for us the populace still lives in poverty there's still this abject poverty wherever you go in these countries to China coming in and essentially taking over now from where I'm sitting, part of the reason that China got this is because both the US, the UK, and a lot of Western countries, so to speak, outsource a lot of their manufacturing and other things over to China to put them in a position where they can grow and build and build internally, which our countries just can't do. There's no industry really in the UK apart from banking. Engineering used to be massive and and you know, all my friends that work in engineering are looking for greener pastures abroad at this point in time, for the most part. Uh, how is it that China got into this position of power then? Well, first of all, you know, when I was an economic hitman, we had the Soviet Union and the United States vying. And if if a country wanted to get a better deal from the United States, they would invite the Soviet Union in to make an offer. And usually they didn't want the Soviet Union. Nobody, very few countries really wanted the Soviet Union. No, nobody really wanted to be have a government like the Soviets. And the Soviets didn't really have a lot to offer. Their economy was pretty small. It it was not. But 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 they could. They they were they were a leverage against us. We were so fearful of the Soviet Union in the United States that we would then soften terms. After the Soviet Union ended in 1991, we were the only superpower. And you know, we had an opportunity at that point to really try to advocate for democracy and a good form of capitalism. We had a tremendous opportunity. We blew it. When mm. in great greed, I'm talking we being the United States, I, I wasn't involved in it then, but the United States went in and 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 we continued this terrible policy of, of exploiting countries. And then, and it caused a lot of resentment in countries, but they didn't have anybody to turn to. And then suddenly China emerges. And really it was 1913, I mean, so, sorry, 2013 when, when President Xi uh, came into power and it had been growing, but Xi recognized an, an incredible opportunity here. He could go out to the world and he could say, look what China did. We brought over 700 million people out of poverty <laughs> since the 70s. And we've had economic growth that's averaged just about 10% a year for 30 years. Nobody else has ever done that. During those same years, the United States did not experience an increase in the average wage when it, when it, when accounting for inflation, what we call the real wage did not increase. It has not increased since the 1970s. At the same time, the middle class in the United States has declined from 60% to 50% of the population. So China has this incredible opportunity that President Xi sees of saying to the world, well, which model 
do you want in Latin America and Africa? Do you want to follow the model of a country that's risen out of the ashes of, of a cultural revolution and, and become the second most dominant power in, in the world uh, economically? Or do you want to continue with this American policy that's been exploiting you for all these years, demanded military bases on your soil, and the United States hasn't done very well, really, when you come right down to it, mm. compared to China. So the China model it becomes very, very attractive. China goes in, though, with the same economic hitman strategy, the same four pillars. And, you know, but they're, they're often they're offering better terms in debt. They've forgiven a lot of debt in, in much of Africa. Um, it's, you know, and I'm not defending the Chinese approach at all. The economic hitman strategy is absolutely wrong and extremely detrimental to the world, regardless of whether it's practiced by China or the United States or Russia or anyone else. It, in fact, has created climate change. It's, cre it's created what we call a death economy, an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction, you know, based on short-term maximization of profits. That's, that's the guiding principle. How do we make more and more profits based on incredible materialistic greed and exploitation? And we, we've got to end it. It's causing climate change. It's causing species extinctions, environmental destruction, income inequality. Those are all symptoms of a system that's been around a long time and has gotten a lot worse in the last uh, few, in my lifetime. And we've got to end it. And, you know, my, my, my upcoming book, that's, that's, that's the approach I take that, you know, China and the United States can disagree on everything else, but we have to agree that we're going to come together to end climate change, to end this death economy, or there really isn't much hope for human beings and, and for life as we know it on this planet, Sonny. We, we have to turn this thing around because this system, one that I was a very instrumental part of, 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 of expanding back in the 70s, is destroying life on this planet as we know it. Part of um, where that email uh, was kind of leaning into when I sent it to you of the business dealings that we now see out of China and with Ukraine from uh, Hunter Biden, for example, the leaks from the laptop and whatnot. And it does lean into exactly what you've just said of there are these politically backed things that are happening from US government, but then there are corporations going in there with US citizens sitting on the board or whatnot. How is it that we've come to this situation now where, like you said, it's no longer benefiting the public. These people are no longer there to serve Joe Average, you know, um, with all due respect, uh, you've got uh, a couple years less left on the planet than someone like myself. And for me, it looks like every year is a potential year where things are just going to go by the wayside and more and more I see it in British Parliament I see it in Dutch Parliament as well that they're not looking out for our interests as the population and how is it that we've come to this point well that's a really good question Sonny and uh you know, don't be too confident that you've got more years left than I do because the way the, the, way the planet's going right now. <laughs> Fair enough. I worry, not to be too cynical, but I oh, worry. Knock on wood. 
we are truly in apocalyptic times and the fires and the drought and the floods. I mean, it's just, it's all happening. And, and what are we doing? We're saying, well we'll, well, we'll get things changed by 2040. The Chinese are saying 2060 and or 20, even 2030, it's, it's too late. You know, we've got to, we've, you know, but I understand. How do you like, you know, so here's the president of the United States, Biden, who's been very strongly anti-fossil fuels and pro the green movement. Now, suddenly he's negotiating with Saudi Arabia and trying to pick up the oil. And I understand why, because otherwise the economy is going to crash even more than it's already crashed and it continues to crash. Very, very difficult questions here. But the fact of the matter is, and, and the, the pandemic and then this, this war in Iraq, uh, has taken us away from the, the most serious issue on the planet, the most serious problem, which is climate change. And actually climate change is only a symptom, like species extinctions and income inequality. Uh, these are symptoms of what economists are calling a death economy, an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction that's based on one goal, and that goal is to maximize short-term profits and short-term consumption, materialistic consumption, regardless of the social and environmental costs. That's the economic system that's been building. And I was, as an economic hitman, that was my job really was to create this system. We weren't calling it that at the time. We didn't even see it as that at the time. We were, we were blinded to, to it. But now we understand it. And we, we were beginning to move away from it toward a life economy, an economic system that will pay people to clean up pollution. Uh, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to develop technologies that don't ravage the earth, that are truly uh, zero, zero sum polluting, zero sum waste uh, conditions. We were moving in that direction, and now suddenly, with with, with especially the war, but also the pandemic, uh, we've, we've we've taken several steps backward. And it's very, very scary. It's very scary for anyone your age, for anyone my grandson's age, he's 14 years old. You know, I, I worry about I worry about the future. And it's my fault. You know, it's it's my generation's fault. You you guys are stuck with it. It's a look at it as a great privilege to have this challenge. You're faced with an incredible challenge. <laughs> but you but you better you, you better face up to it and you better you better be skilled at bringing us through this challenge. It, taking a bit of a sharp left there um towards uh the climate change situation uh, as it were. And um I mean I know this is something that you are adamantly involved in and adamantly looking to create a sustainable future and it's one of the things that I find really interesting because as I see it I, I know we've gone away from the economic stuff for the moment but it does circle back if we dump the fossil fuels which I do think we should but if we dump them tomorrow we don't have the infrastructure funnily enough something which you're very well versed in there getting people we don't have the infrastructure to carry forward to the day after we don't have the battery capacity we don't have the energy production systems so this is where i've been ultimately baffled at the lack of interest it seems in nuclear power because if we were to use nuclear power 
I, I, the, the phrase that's used is the amount of uranium required to power it for my lifetime will be a Coke can sized of um, uranium in order to get that power going. So as someone who is as steeped in a sustainable future as you are, where do you see nuclear playing a role in that future? Because ultimately, solar farms destroy a lot of land in their production and the minerals required to get them. Wind farms are also known to whack out a couple birds a year, you know. So how can we utilize those natural renewables and something like nuclear? Do you think that that's possible? Well, I don't think it's possible with the current technology. Uh, whacking out a, a few birds or a few thousand birds or taking up this land is not comparable to what happens in a place like Chernobyl or any, uh, the other nuclear uh, facilities. Yeah. Uh, Fukushima in the last uh... three mile island. I mean, and and how many others that have been that close that we don't know about? And I, I'm fairly familiar with that industry. It's also not economical at this time. Uh, and environmentally, it's pretty bad when you take into account all the materials that go into building those plants and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I think there's, there is potentially a future in new technologies. You know, there's people looking at small fusion generators, which would yeah. be wonderful if that were to happen. But at this point, as far as I know, there's none of those technologies are uh, replicable on a, on a scale that would serve us. So, at this point in time, I don't think nuclear is a is a viable uh, alternative. Although it, it it is occurring more and more in parts of the other parts of the world. Yeah. So I'll I'll give you an example with the energy crisis that's happening in Europe. Yeah. Um, everyone else's bills are going sky high, and the only place you can find within the EU that's not suffering and not threatening blackouts. So Germany are threatening blackouts, and Hamburg has even said we're going to have warming tents areas essentially government buildings where people are going to be able to go to over the winter if it does get to that the uk have said we're potentially going to get blackouts if it continues the way it's going with as you've already mentioned the way that the weather is things are a lot hotter we're not able to store as much energy yada yada france is the only place uh, that has stayed quite low in their energy costs and that's because of the fact that they have a large nuclear base for their power uh, so a lot of their power comes from nuclear, I should say, not just one facility. But yeah, so it, economically, there has to be some sort of payoff because you know I wholeheartedly uh, agree in the sentiment of what we're doing to the planet. It can't go on. We have this death economy where we have just lived to destroy it. It's not like the oldest civilizations whereby they lived not one with the land, but they knew when it was good agricultural land, when to move on from the land, what to do with the land, how much they could cut down without being too detrimental to the overarching uh, ecology there. There has to be some kind of give and take there, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What's the big, what's the real question you're asking? I, I suppose that the fair point, the real question that I'm asking is how much can we expect to uh, suffer is probably a bit of a strong word, suffer no, in the short no, term. No, no, it's the right word. We, we've got to suffer. Um, 
you know, we've made terrible mistakes and we, we have to pay for them. The planet is demanding that we pay for the mistakes we made. The question is, um, are we willing to suffer in the short run in order to get ourselves in a position where your children and grandchildren will live in a, a viable world? Or are we going to keep putting this thing off and having the burden in their hands? Hmm. Kicking the can and, down the road, as it were. Yeah, and that's what we've been doing. And that's what we, most of the world seems to be doing that now. It's, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get this thing straightened out. We'll, we'll be net zero by the year 2050, 2060, 2070, whatever. Um, that's too late. Uh, it, it, the suffering is going to be much, much greater. So, yeah, we've got to suffer. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like sometimes, you know, you have to, you have to, um, in the short run, you, you, you have to swallow the pill. Yeah. It's going to make you a little sick in the short run so that you will be healthier in the long run kind of thing. Um, Break a few and, eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> yeah, yes. We've, uh, you know, we've made catastrophic mistakes. And we blindsided ourselves to them for far too long. We were in denial about climate change. Large sectors of our population, at least, were in denial about climate change for a long time, even though it was pretty obvious that it was happening. The last president of the United States was in denial about that, you know, six, five, six, seven years ago. And uh, now we're not, so, I don't think there's hardly anybody in denial anymore about the, 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 these problems. There are a few voices in the wilderness out there, but um, but, the, but what we are in denial about is that we have to suffer in the short run. We don't want to suffer. You know, we're all in the United States right now. Everybody's all excited and upset because the stock market's going down. I have a retirement fund, you know, that's, that, that is, that's receding on me rapidly i'm not happy about that is it like my hairline then it's uh <laughs> <laughs> yes it's gone the way of the dodo <laughs> yeah i've been careful to you know keep my place. but but uh and, and i think that's a good analogy that it's that yes we're going to have to suffer somebody's going to suffer mm. is it going to be us or is it going to be our children and grand your, your children and grandchildren and my grand my grandson and his children um, I would rather that, that we get started soon. And I think you can say the same thing about nuclear. Uh, it, it, you know, right now, and I think nuclear is something that needs to be investigated more and more and more. It shouldn't be ruled out. I'm not at all suggesting that. But at the moment, I think we have to look at uh, the, the short-term benefits that France is getting from nuclear and the possible long-term consequences of the, of the, you know, what, what happens to all the radiation once that plant uh, closes down? What do they, how do you dispose of it? We still don't have good ways to do that. And that's a burden, that's a burden on future generations, no matter how you, how you cut it. Uh, and again, you know, some of the new technologies seem to look as though they may be able to use up the waste or not create the waste. Yeah. That's very important, I think, for our research to look at. But again, it's this question of how much do we, if France solves the problem in the short run, is it creating a bigger problem in the long run? Is it creating the potential for some of those plants to malfunction or human error is usually the big cause of these, these accidents? Ultimately, a piece of equipment may fail, but then how humans react to it is another issue. Um, do, do, we have a, do we have a competency to do that? Do we have the backup systems? Do we have 
but now the AI technology may provide a lot of answers to some of these questions. The, 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 the AI might have prevented Chernobyl or, or Fukushima or any of the other ones. Well, we don't know for sure. There's a lot to to open up and unpack there, but um, I think one of the biggest bits that you mentioned at the end there, the, the climate change aspect, is something that, for me, I think is big enough to be its own conversation because I, I do recognize that drilling for oil uh, the way that we are going for resources and the way that we are destroying parts of the world, in essence, in order to get at these resources is absolutely dreadful. It's absolutely awful. There are better ways to do it. And we're exploiting the land in the worst possible way. We're destroying habitats, destroying nature. Now, there's, you spend a lot of time in the Amazon, so you've probably seen a lot of the damage that's occurred there as well um so the destruction to land is one thing uh that i'm fully on board with the temperature change aspects that's also brought into the question of climate change is something that i'm still on the fence about given certain particular things so i'd, I'd love to talk to you about that as well however we can circle back around to that as your knowledge as well within the energy sector is something that I'd love to talk about on that aspect too. As we mentioned in the, the last chat that we had, which unfortunately I had technical issues with, um, the nuclear power element too. But you mentioned there the exploitation and the short-term maximization of profits. Now for me, as someone who's not an uh, economist, it sounds a lot like Friedman-style economics where you privatize all the businesses and the CEOs work just to maximize profits. And the uh, approach, as I'm familiar with it um, uh, from, uh, let's say, the shock doctrine from Naomi Klein, is that the way that Milton Friedman justified it was by saying that if these businesses are profitable, all other aspects, i.e. Uh, social uh, qualities, uh, environmental things, these things will all improve as well. Now, here we are, it's 2022, and we know for an absolute fact that that's kind of not what happens when companies go to maximize profits. They want to get sweatshops involved. If we take something like Nike, for example, they're not going for good quality local sourced things. They're going for the cheapest possible alternative. Um, can you maybe talk to us about that switch also from Keynesian economics towards Friedman uh, style economics, that Chicago style of economics and how that also had an impact and where both the US and Chinese economic hitman um, style of colonialization has uh, adopted these methods? Sure. Yeah. Um you're really talking about neoliberal economics. That's that's Friedman's, yeah. Yep. And it, you know, it really took off when with the uh, Hayek, uh, um, Frederick Hayek, uh, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, a couple of years before Friedman, who who won it in in seventy six. Okay. And Hayek came out of Austria. He came out of uh, out of this tremendous fear of Nazism and big government. You know. 
And so he very strongly promoted uh, the idea of privatization, of, of getting government out of everything. Hmm. And, uh, but he wasn't extremely well known. Um, he did win the Nobel Prize in economics, but soon after him and, 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 a, and, a, and a, a collaborator with him uh, was uh, Milton Friedman, who became, who was very well known and mm -hmm. won the Nobel Prize in economics in 76 and had the year of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and, and leaders all over the world. He traveled extensively all over the world promoting this idea of neo, neo, uh, 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 neoliberal economics. Yeah. Uh, which basically says, get government out of business, um, minimize or get rid of get rid of regulations and restrictions. Let private business take over, and let private business be driven by yeah, uh, short maximization of short term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs at the time. Because he actually said, as you mentioned, if we maximize short term profits, that'll take care of uh, social and environmental problems. Which is crazy when you think about it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense from the go go get, and we've seen that it doesn't do that. This led to trickle down economics, uh, the idea that if you don't tax, and that's that was another aspect, don't tax the rich hmm. because they're going to reinvest their money and create economic growth. Well, we've seen that that, <laughs> that just doesn't work. Uh, they reinvest their money and make economic growth for themselves. Yeah, and of course we can show well GDP's increased. Look at this, you know, Friedman won the Nobel Prize in 1976. The U.S. GDP has increased a lot <laughs> since then. But once again, as I said before, that, that really measures what the wealthy have done and the big businesses have done. Um, and, you know, 70% of the business in this country, of, of, of all the income in this country, 70% of it comes through the Fortune 500 corporations. And many of them pay no taxes whatsoever. It's a disgusting system. And you mentioned China. Well, China comes along and, and President Xi makes a big point of being opposed to neoliberalism. He says, China developed the way we have. We had 10% economic growth for 30 years. We brought 700 million people out of, out of uh, poverty, dire poverty, and we've done it by opposing neoliberalism. We have put a lot of power in the hands of government. Our, our, many of our biggest businesses are owned at least to a large degree by government. There's a combination often of government and uh, private, they're called SO, SOE, state-owned enterprises. And you know we've, we've taken care of our people. We're not looking at the short-term, we have long-term plans. We're the, he says we're the opposite of neoliberalism. And that appeals today to a great many countries who are fed up with uh, the U.S.'s imposition. It's not just the U.S., the NATO, European allies of the U.S. get involved too. Um, they're fed up with it. And they've seen it doesn't work in the United States very well. And furthermore, they'll say, and I hear this a lot, Sonny, um, if the United States is a democracy, we don't want it. It doesn't work. Your, your, your Congress can't agree on anything. There's, there ain't no compromises. You have a president that comes along and changes all the rules that the previous presidents put into play, disregards agreements in, that were made. And so this whole idea of autocracy is taken over. And I'm very concerned about that, that, that the appeal of democracy is fading around much of the world. We're seeing it in Italy. You know, Italy has made big news in the last week because of its turn toward 
the right and toward authoritarianism. And we see, we're certainly seeing it in Russia. We're seeing it many, many places because partly be, because the United States has been such a bad model of democracy. It's not democracy that's failed us. It's the U.S. model in recent years that's failed us. I would go even further to that to say it's okay the u.s model hasn't helped but it's the people that are there it's it's the lifelong politicians that are there for 40 years or more that have no idea what it's like for the average joe walking down the street so they're making these policies and maybe there's some malice in some of these politicians absolutely that's a possibility but i do think there's also politicians who there's no malice behind what they're doing necessarily they're just too stupid to know that they're affecting people lower down the rungs they really live up above in the clouds and don't see what's happening down below in in the gutters and when they hear something they think oh it's it's just those few people complaining not realizing that actually the majority of their society is is living in poverty having to go to food banks their healthcare workers their teachers you name it and i think for me that's where a lot of people have lost faith in it and i don't think we live in a democracy if i'm if i'm deadly honest i and right. you've seen things a lot worse of course and you know we're by no means north korea we're by no means russia or china um I don't think we live in a true democracy that's representative of the people, be that in the UK or in the Netherlands where I am now, or even in the US. I think, yeah, yeah, it, it's just not. It's people, it's authoritarian people working to their own means, their own ends, and pretending it's still a democracy. I totally agree. That's why, you know, it's not that democracy isn't working, it's that the, the democracies that we know aren't working it's the people but it's also the system so in the united states we have this the situation where every state gets two senators and you can have a state with an extremely small population very very rural all farmers and they have certain interests in life and yet they have the same power in the u.s senate with their two senators as a, as a state like new york or California that's highly urbanized and has very very different problems from those of farmers in in the midwest and uh, that's to me, that's not democracy. That's not equal representation. That, that a state with a very small population has as much power in the Senate as one with a very large population. That's 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 the opposite of democracy. That's giving a very few people a lot of power. And then, in addition to that, of course, in the United States, at least, we have this uh, you know uh, these laws that allow big corporations to basically bribe politicians. Uh, you know, no, nobody can get elected in the United States to a major uh, position uh, without a lot of money that comes from corporations or it may come from individuals who made it in corporations. And so those individuals are beholden to the corporations. Again, it's this form of corruption, what we mentioned earlier, the revolving door, the, the fact that uh, the, the, the George Schultz was Secretary of State and also uh, President of Bechtel and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Bush was on oil boards, then a president, and Dick Cheney's on X amount of boards. And if was it was it maybe in Confessions or maybe in the Secret History where you mentioned that he didn't even have to let go of his position; uh, it kind of just fell by the wayside. 
the fact that he was on the board and he was meant to leave but got to stick about. Lucky yeah. boy. Um, so if we bring this back to China then, they go into these countries and they're saying, listen, you know, you can either go with the US and go with their method, go with their model, and you see how that's going down now. You see how cities are burning themselves apart and people are now telling you that they're a tree and all this other crazy stuff that's happening in the US. Or, you know, we can grow things for you. So how far has their reach gotten? And how... Uh, how likely is it that it's now becoming something encroaching on the US and Western Europe and their way of being? Because they've done it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, will the Chinese win? They've won. And the, 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 at least they won the most recent battles, economically speaking. Uh, they are the number one investor and trading partner and or trading partner on every continent in the world, including North America. <laughs> you know, the United States economy is extremely dependent on the Chinese economy for, 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 for its, many of its inputs and also for its markets. Um, and the Chinese are dependent on the US for, many, for its markets. So, um, but the Chinese have taken over. Uh, there's no question about it. And, you know, I've been, I just finished this book that comes out in February, but it goes into China's economic hitman strategy. And it, it, it points out in, in the book that uh, every single part of the world now is, is beholden to China, in, in economically speaking. Um, and China, unlike Russia or unlike the Soviet Union, <clears throat> has a model that people can buy into. It's been extremely successful. It has the second largest economy in the world after the U.S. and by PP, the PP economy, which is uh, spending power uh, parity is larger. In other words, the people have have more spending power in in the, when you convert to their currency than we do in ours. But um, and it has another extremely powerful tool, and that is the perception that it offers the world the new Silk Road. It's called the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. And so it's saying that if you join us, you will become part of an international trading network. You will be an integral part of this new Silk Road. You know, when, and I, I taught at an MBA program in China not too long ago. Um, <laughs> and of course, the students, that program is, is constantly ranked among the top 10 MBA colleges in the world up there with, with Oxford and Stanford and Harvard and so on. And the students, most of the students there had been handpicked by the Communist Party to be the, the leaders of, of the future. And they're very brilliant and they're, they're, they're the future leaders. And, you know, I was it was very interesting to see how they looked at, at our two different systems and how much more compelling they found their system. And this idea of the new Silk Road was very, very important to them, that we are creating a trading network for the entire world. Where, when we give, when Ecuador takes a big loan from us, uh, we are, we're going to use it to tie its roads in with Peru's roads and Colombia's roads. And, and we're also going to help it build ports to tie it in with the sea routes to Africa and Asia and all over. But when I first learned about this, I thought to myself, my God, 
how brilliant. Why didn't we think of that? Because it's a, <laughs> it's an amazing marketing tool. And ultimately, it serves China's interests very, very strongly because it ties them in even more with this with this trading network. But it's a it's a wonderful promotional uh, uh, gimmick, and it's not just a gimmick; it it, it is happening. Um, so they China has a great deal to offer other countries, and especially other countries that are fed up with the colonialism of Europe and the United States. But then. Are they not succumbing to a new type of colonialism with China? Yes. And yes. how are people not realizing that? What is so different in China's approach that they've taken this soft glove approach that people don't realize that they've kind of snuck in in the middle of the night? Very important aspect is that we go in and we say, hey, you know, take this loan from us, hire our companies uh, to build big infrastructure in your project, in your, in your, in your big infrastructure projects in your country. And buy into the neoliberal economic system that we're that we're pro proposing that that privatizes business and takes government out of it. And China comes in and says, "Take these big loans from us, hire our companies to build big infrastructure projects that will help your country's economy advance, and we're not going to we're not even going to try to impact your 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 government, your policies. We we don't care what your policies are. We don't care whether you're." capitalists or, or democracy or, or communist or dictatorship, we don't care. And the fact of the matter is the United States doesn't really care either. We say we do, but we support very undemocratic Saudi governments. Arabia, yeah. Saudi yeah. Arabia, Kuwait and Iran in the past, Iran, Iran. and many yeah. others. You put dictators in power, right? We do. With the Shah of Shahs, yeah. Yeah. And but but China says we don't do that, we're, and we're not going to do it. We're, we're going to let you decide on how you want to run your your country, and that's very attractive to these countries. So China's taken a very very different approach to reach the same ends, which is to basically colonize the world and then, become the dominant power. How is that country then beholden to China? Because when the U.S. do it, when they put the Shah of Shahs in place. It was someone who was going to work with the US because of XYZ reason, because they've greased their palm, because they're paying, like you mentioned, their brothers, brothers, cousins, sisters, aunts, uncle, and all the rest of it, and got on their family into Cambridge, into Oxford, into Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. What is it that China's doing to ensure their cooperation of this foreign country? Because they're also far away. <laughs> well, it's primarily debt. So they give these huge loans to these countries. And there's a lot of corruption that goes on there, too. And China may may not be directly involved, or perhaps it may be. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of people then see themselves in those countries tied to the China and to China's way. And, and the whole country is tied in with debt. Here's, I just mentioned Ecuador, and that's a great example. Ecuador switched, it basically got rid of all of its U.S. Uh, World Bank, IMF debt as much as it could in the past, and it's taken huge amounts of debt from China. But because it can't pay back those debts, uh, China, uh, under its contracts, China has the right to go in and drill for oil and to, to mine for copper. They'd be building these huge mines out in the very fragile Amazon rainforest uh, for copper, gold, cobalt, and other minerals. Uh, so it's it's similar to what we did, where we said, yeah, if you, if you can't pay your debt, then, then let us take your resource. Yeah. Uh, and, and China's doing pretty much the same thing. And, and the countries are really powerless to accept this. 
And I should mention one other thing. So, so many of these countries, we're talking about lower income countries, Africa, Latin America, parts of the Middle East and Asia, have mineral resources of one form or another, but they don't have the technology to exploit those resources. And um, the United States does have the technology and China has the technology, but they need to bring in some country, some, some company from some country like the United States or China to exploit these resources. Yeah, and they're engineers, they're economists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, so if we park that for a second, um, one of the other big things that's occurred over the last few years is you've already mentioned Europe, you mentioned NATO, the UN, and the World Economic Forum seems to also have a an approach whereby they want to have people in charge, sort of like CEOs over the countries rather than letting the countries have their own normal law and order, so to speak. And one of the things is that they've spoken up a fair bit about China, where you mentioned China selecting their people their leaders for the future the world economic forum has done this as well and put those people in positions of power such as justin trudeau and his cabinet jacinda arden boris johnson even liz truss are all former young global leaders uh running out of the world economic forum if we look at it like that is that not similar in some sense to the economic hitman style of putting your pieces in play to then have control on the global stage where as China does it, they're creating these links between all these different countries through the infrastructure where this has happened then with the world economic forum is through the leaders of the nations themselves. So Angela Merkel was another one. So basically most of Europe was a leader in some form or another or close to the leader who was there who could then dictate and help to push certain ideals in a particular way. And what that has led to, if you look at the UK, is Liz Truss is now taking out more and more loans. And that quantitative easing is only going to negatively affect the people in the UK as interest rates seem to be bouncing up and down and the cost of living is going up. How then would you say that fits into the picture and also fits into an an almost planned demolition of the countries as they stand now? So are you asking how does China do that or no as as a third party in this almost oh. the the World Economic Forum in co uh, cooperation with um Western Europe, uh, for sure, and then uh, CEOs, in a sense, utilizing the Friedman-esque control given to said CEOs of major companies. And then when you watch their global leaders that are in power, almost imploding countries like Liz Truss and Boris Johnson have done to the UK in the last few years, and Liz in the last few weeks, how does that all come together? to then help push these goals forward, to push these initiatives whereby countries are becoming further and further saddled with debt? Well, I, I think 
you know, perhaps even more, it, it certainly puts all the countries at, 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 at basically what we call the, the, the debt trap. So these countries are now put in a debt trap where they, they are beholden to the big banks and to the financial institutions around in, in, in those parts of the world where they work. But it also is something that other countries that are looking to develop, the, the lower income countries, will, will look at these models and say, that's not working. And China, again, if we go back to China, China comes along and it's created all these various organizations. And there's the Southeast Asian organization. There's the one, they've created a huge organization in Africa where practically every African country, now 54, I think of them have now signed on to this uh, alliance. Basically it's a trading alliance. It's not a political alliance, it's a trading alliance. China's been very successful at this. It's not insignificant. I was recently in Kazakhstan and speaking at a big economic forum in, in Kazakhstan and, and many of the Chinese leaders were there and the, I get to be friendly with, with Putin's top economic advisor and there, there were, you know, it was an amazing group of people and Kazakhstan is, is perched to play an ama a major role in the development of the new Silk Road as it comes out of China and expands into Africa, the Middle East and, and Europe. Kazakhstan is right there. It's, it's 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 like the linchpin, and it's not insignificant that that, that for Xi's first trip out of China and Hong Kong was to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan about a week or so ago, where he and he met with Putin. There, Putin came came into China's territory, basically what China considers it's part of its territory, and uh, so these the, the World Economic Forum it represents. The, the kind of the neoliberal approach to economics, but China's countering that by developing its own versions of the similar types of forums or alliances, whatever you want to call them, coalitions of, of countries in, in every major part of the world uh, to oppose neoliberalism, or at least on the surface to oppose it. So even in that instance, it's... It is much influence and power as the world economic forum has created for itself they're still um having to vie for that power with china then that's that's interesting but well, also you... the world economic forum basically is creating uh the groundwork for big corporations to maximize short-term profits that ultimately is their goal it's neoliberalism it's privatization it's it's reducing taxes on the rich. You've just seen that in England, as you mentioned. That's something that 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 the, the trust has has done or tried to do, and there's a backlash against it now. So it's it's implementing neoliberalism essentially. Okay, and then you mentioned Russia there, and I'm cognizant that we're uh, sort of running short on time as well. You mentioned also there's potential scandals now with uh, Biden in Ukraine. How does Russia and Ukraine fit into this global picture in terms of the influence that it's had, not just economically, but the impact that it will have in terms of who, uh, at the end of the day, comes out as the quote unquote winner, as it, it could go either way towards one or the other of the big powers, right? Yeah, I think uh, Putin understands that he's not a major power. He's not going to compete with China or the United States in in a fair war he can only be a disruptor and that's what he's doing he's disrupting 
and he's trying at the same time to expand uh, Russia to, you know, he's, he's, he's gone on record as saying that one of the greatest catastrophes of the last century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So he's, he's got several agendas here, but one of them is just to be a disruptor. And um, I think he, like Xi of China, they really want to get rid of U.S. hegemony in the world, the, the power that the U.S. exerts over the world. So from that standpoint, he's helping China, but it's also hurting China because this this war and and has very adversely affected supply chains, as we all know, is having a big impact, a negative impact on China's new Silk Road policies. And the fact that China didn't immediately step in and defend a sovereign nation, Ukraine is is, is hurting China's reputation around the world. But at the same time, China hasn't actually really supported Russia. It hasn't not supported him, but it's taken a pretty mild stand. And I've got to believe that uh, hearing what both Putin and Xi said after they met in Uzbekistan, um, that 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 Putin that 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 Xi is putting a lot of pressure on Russia to somehow end this thing, because it it in the long run it doesn't serve China's interests except in the small area where it, it threatens U.S. hegemony, possibly. But in fact, it seems to be strengthening U.S. hegemony and uh, and, uh, and the NATO alliance. So um, it, it's very disruptive. And from, from my standpoint, the worst thing of all is that it's taken all of our attention away from solving the world's biggest crisis, which is the death economy and uh, climate change. And you know, one of the major themes of this, my new book, is that China and the United States can disagree on everything else. But if we don't come together and lead the world out of this death economy that's, that's based on terrible exploitation of resources, if we don't lead the world out of this awful short-term economic system, um, <clears throat> we're doomed, or it seems as though we're close to doomed. <laughs> Life as we know it on this planet is never going to be the same. We've got to put this behind us. We've got to put the e economic hitman strategy behind us, regardless of whether that's implemented by China or the United States or Russia or anyone else. We need to move into a new era where we have to understand that we human beings have a huge responsibility to be good stewards on this planet. And we have not done a good job at that. In, 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 ever. <laughs> well, that's not true. Indigenous people have done a very good job at it over history, taking care of their environments. It's a bad, bad, but for the last for the last decades, and perhaps you could go back a couple of thousand years to see the roots of it. But especially since World War II, we've done a horrible job of of stewardship, and we need to change that. Well, I think that's a nice way nice way to finish up there and you know i i'm also wholeheartedly with you on the indigenous folk have treated the land and everything better when you look at farming practices and the way that they were able to maintain soil quality nutrition and foods and and the like and then what we've done in the last in the last hundred years making the nutrient value of the foods that we eat less than 10 percent of what it was and having to increase our calorie amount i think it's something ridiculous like to get the same value out of 
strawberries as you did a hundred years you'd have a hundred years ago you'd have to eat five times as much because we've we've just destroyed the soil and the nutrient factor of where it was all originally coming from so it yeah in that sense i'm wholeheartedly with you and you know, your experiences of uh, going and doing your volunteer work uh, during the Vietnam years and and seeing how things were done by indigenous tribes. I can only imagine um, the experiences that you've had there. But uh, John, uh, we've got maybe one, potentially two minutes left. What would you say would be the most important things for the listeners to keep an eye out on or to look out for, look towards going into the uh, future? aside from your book out in February. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that book goes into that a lot. It's called the Conventions of the Economic Hitman, third edition, the Chinese Economic Hitman Strategy and how to take the, how to how to end the global takeover. Um, you know, I think we live at amazing times. I mean, I think we're, we're blessed to be alive right now because we truly are on the cusp, but we're, we're perched at the edge of a precipice here. It'd be very easy for us to fall off that precipice. And, but it's also a good time to really reconsider what it means to be human on this planet. And I think every one of your listeners is in a position to, to really go deep into what can I do that'll help transform this death economy into a life economy. And a life economy is an economic system that pays people to clean up pollution, to find you know uses for all that plastic that's out there, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle and to create, to develop new technologies that don't ravage the earth. We are at an amazing time and it's a time to be very creative and, and hopeful and, and inspired to move forward into this new era and to, to, to see to it that we do survive as a species in the long term. Great. Thank you very much, John. Really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again uh, in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for all you do. Keep up your great work.